0: James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, I know that God is full of mercy and his love never fails. But when I read this verse, I'm reminded of times where I was in the hot seat in my boss's office for something that was not done right. And the most memorable, and not in a good way, were the bosses who I respected. I felt really stupid trying to explain something that they were not happy with. So knowing that I was actually doing a good job at what I did, but simply saying I would do better, it wasn't satisfying to me. There was something more that needed to happen. I needed to not just do a better job. I needed to do it right. And there were things outside my control that I was responsible for. And if I didn't make sure every I was dotted and every T was crossed, I would likely be back in the hot seat soon. And this was very frustrating to me as a supervisor. And time went on and the issue subsided and I felt a little relief. But now I was faced with an even more scary scenario, teaching people God's word. The responsibility I have as a teacher who has been called into the teaching ministry by God himself is beyond what I can understand. I don't get it a lot of times. I don't know why God uses me in this type of ministry. I know that he does use me, but it's like, why did you pick me? But the word penetrates the dark places of the heart, and it's vital to someone desiring to learn about God and draw close to him to learn his word. So I have always taken this responsibility serious. I must teach the word accurately and in sincerity. But also, I must be an example to those that I'm teaching because they learn not just by hearing, but also watching my life like I have learned by watching other people's lives. And I've learned some very valuable lessons regarding people's integrity when they were going through very difficult times. And I'm like, man, I hope I can have that kind of response in that kind of situation. So I'm just inviting that kind of stuff into my life. I'm like, okay, here we go. God's going to do things in my life that I'm going to have to show them. I believe what I teach and I do what the Bible says. And that's scary because we all fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And I'm accountable for everything I do and say before God. Since I'm well aware of that fact that I don't know everything, this is a little bit alarming. But God is faithful, and God does the work. And even in some of my unorthodox approaches, I'm constantly asking God, is this okay? How do I go about this? And I pray for his wisdom and his will to be done in my life. So anybody who wants to be a teacher without the calling of God, I think you're crazy because you need the Holy Spirit to do God's will. Yes, we obey, but it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that he speaks through those who teach, just like he serves through those who serve. He ministers through those who minister. It's him doing the work, and if you don't have that and you want to teach, then what you're going to be left with is you. It is not, in my opinion, satisfying for me to teach anything when it's just me. God has to be involved, and he has to be prodding me forward in it. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways, And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. And this is the problem again. We are sinners, and we stumble. As it says in Romans 3.10, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. Nobody. And I understand that includes me. So teaching for me is something I take serious because there's a lot at stake when imparting the word of God to his children, especially when you've been called into this ministry. God expects me to be obedient. And James is laying it out because there's a lot of people that yeah I want to be up front man no you don't not from God's perspective you want to be right where God wants you you don't want to be showing off you don't want to be walking around in your hipster looking clothes and everything and being applauded if God wants you to cleaning toilets which I did then that's where you need to go and you need to clean toilets for the glory of God and not worry about wanting something more visible faithfulness that's what He's looking for verse three if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us. We guide their whole bodies as well. Verse 4, look at the ships also, though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. Verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Obviously, our mouths are important in this teaching role, but also we have to look at the mouth, what it does. Look at how much damage we can cause when we're being stupid. And James now addresses the issue of what we say and how that can be detrimental to our witness and those around us. And we've got to control our mouths; otherwise, we can cause a lot of damage. Verse six: and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell when i was stationed overseas in the early 90s i bought a video camera and i'm kind of a techie nerd when it comes to audio and video stuff and so i really enjoyed it and i took a lot of video of places we were traveling And in those videos, there was times when my wife was recording and there I was being an idiot. And I wish I had not bought that camera. And very rarely I will watch one of those videos, one of them that I didn't chuck when I got saved, and just listen to the way I talk. And not necessarily the vulgarity, although that was there, but the arrogance. All of my flesh in its glory. I'm just looking at it going, man, my tongue was indeed... Set on fire by hell. Verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Verse 9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. You see a kind of a common theme here, what James is pointing out in chapter 3? It's like we got to watch what we say. We got to watch the way that we're saying it. We have to be careful because God is watching, and so is everybody else. So when I really feel like I need a good tune-up from the Lord and I want to spend some quiet time in the Word, I will often read the book of James because he's pretty blunt and he says it like it is. It's kind of like 60-grit sandpaper. You know, you have the sandpaper that just kind of scuffs the surface, and then you have the sandpaper that just rips the varnish right off the wood. That's kind of the way James is. He's like, we're not going to sit here and be nice and respectful. (laughs) (laughs) where can I rip off your varnish? And this verse really convicts me every time I read it, because even though God has done a great work in my life over the years and has allowed a lot of junk to disappear from my life, I have a hard time mastering this one. Taming the tongue. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And I think the key word here is brothers. And when I get together with believers, I try very hard to watch what I say because we're supposed to be building up one another in the faith. And one word can really mess that up. And I can really come off as a jerk when I'm passionate about something. So keeping my mouth shut is something I'm constantly reminding myself. And just asking God, give me the words to say that is appropriate And so I really find myself a lot going down that road. God, just give me the words. Don't let me come off like a jerk. Give me the love of God. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So here we're left with a choice. Regarding the tongue, we either have a wicked mouth or a holy mouth. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees again in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. He says, You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our speech is a reflection of what is in our hearts. If I have a filthy mouth, that means I have a filthy heart. If I have a critical mouth, that means I have a critical heart. If I have a hateful mouth, that means I have a hateful heart. It's a direct reflection of what is in us. So think about that the next time you're having conversations with people. What are they seeing from my words? What are my words really telling them? Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So we're kind of shifting gears a little bit here. Now we're going to talk about wisdom in meekness. James is anticipating some of the readers to have wisdom and understanding. And wisdom is something that we are encouraged to seek after throughout the scriptures. For example, in Psalm 90, verse 12, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it, wisdom, have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So wisdom in meekness. And meekness is not a word that we use a lot, but it's important for the believer to understand and model. Matthew 5, 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So there's a part of us that needs to demonstrate meekness. Aristotle, he said meekness is as the middle standing between two extremes, getting angry without reason and not getting angry at all. So meekness is kind of right there in the middle, taking it in, exercising self-control, and going, okay, now let's apply some wisdom here. And meek does not mean cowardly or weak. It just has the meaning of you're being self-controlled. And we don't go off on a tangent over something. Rather, we carefully consider it and make the proper approach and considering our reputation, how we're going to approach this, but also considering what's right here, what is right and what's wrong. Take a breath, figure it out. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are two examples of what meekness and wisdom are not. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, not to mention every other attitude that opposes holiness, have nothing to do with God. So why do a lot of us constantly have to address these things in our own lives? I think 1 John 5.19 answers that. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. If the world lies under the power of the evil one, we should expect wicked people to possess this earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom being false to the truth. And we should also expect the temptation to go that way or to fall under someone's tutelage who is a wicked person but has this kind of wisdom. There are a lot of people that are not believers that have wisdom. Some of these people are good, some of them are bad, but they have wisdom. They know how things work, they know how to get their way, they know how to make things pan out. We've got to be careful. Where does their wisdom come from? Verse 16, "...for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice." So he's really hammering home on this jealousy thing and selfish ambition. And Paul in Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So we see a comparison of a person who's selfishly ambitious. And what they're basically saying is, I'm going to conquer you. I'm better than you, and I'm going to step all over you. And Paul's like, no, in humility, you count others more significant than yourselves. That pays a lot of dividends in the long run, where people, they just mow over people. You know, they get what's coming to them at some point in their lives. Selfish ambition puts the ambitious person above everything else, and in their ambition they grow wicked, trying to get everything that pleases themselves. And what happens, just like that verse said, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Verse 17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This wisdom is foreign to a lot of people, and it comes to a person who seeks after God and his kingdom. And God's wisdom, this is what it looks like. So when people are sharing their wisdom with us, examine the manner in which they present the wisdom. Is it peaceable, gentle, open to reason? Is it full of mercy good fruits? Is it impartial and sincere? So when I read these verses, I need to continually search my soul and see if I am possessing this kind of wisdom. God, give us that kind of wisdom. It's peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, it is so frustrating being around believers and hearing them just go off on tangents. Politics, other churches that don't believe in what we believe, you know, that kind of thing. They just, they go nuts. It's like, that's not wisdom from above. That's not peaceable. It's earthly, sensual, it's demonic. Verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Psalm 34, 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Proverbs twelve twenty: deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. But those who plan peace have joy. As children of God, we look to the word for our marching orders and what kind of person we should be. Going back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, we see what a child of God looks like. It's all about our real self and obeying the word and being that person that God wants us to be. And putting these things into practice, we... Begin to plant the seeds of righteousness as we live in obedience. And then comes the harvest, and that harvest, if sown in obedience, is so much better than the harvest you get from living a worldly life, which can also produce a lot of good things. There's no doubt there's good things in the world that are temporary, but the things of God, they last, and they bring peace. This is the harvest of the peacemaker. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Thank you.